Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the exciting things that are happening for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor, I'm a podcast host, and someone who worries about science communication and how well we're telling the beautiful story of science and the exciting things that are happening right now in agriculture and medicine. It's a great time to talk about biotechnology. And today we're going to talk to Dr. Ayal Maori, he's the chief science officer and co-founder of Tropic Biosciences in Norwich, UK. And they're a company that is uh, taking on a number of really interesting questions in some clever ways, and mostly around what appears to be uh, food security issues in the developing world, as well as it looks like some plants that normally we wouldn't think of being worked on with biotechnology. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Maori. Hi, thank you. Thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really, well, I'm really glad to talk to you because if we poke through the Tropic Biosciences website, it's pretty clear that you're, that you're doing something different than everybody else. And whereas everybody who is um, maybe in the, in the uh, space of genetic improvement through gene editing and, uh, and transgenic approaches, you know, tend to focus on certain crops that seem to be the same. Um, this looks like you're doing some things different. There's there's a big bunch of bananas right on the front page. So it, it gives me hope. <laughs> so could you tell me a little bit about um, why your company started and the problems that you sought to solve? Sure. So at Tropic, we, we develop novel varieties of tropical crops. And currently it includes coffee, banana, and rice. And uh, we are focused on tropical crops because uh, we think it's, it's quite important. Uh, it's quite important because 75% of global food demand growth is expected to be by 2050, is expected to be in the tropical uh, regions. Now, when you look at the R&D funds invested uh, in these areas and also uh, in these crops is, is less than a one one percent. Therefore we we saw the importance of improving these crops, improving their performance and their uh, ability to uh, resist diseases. And we also understand that there is lots to impact because very little innovation has been introduced uh, in this part of the agriculture. That's why we focus on tropical crops. It seems to make perfect sense that these are crops that are non-traditionally the targets of um, of such techniques. And even, even traditional breeding is really slow in a lot of these. That You look at bananas, we have a lot of uh, very old varieties that you can't change very easily because of the breeding constraints of bananas. But um, what are some of the 
um, other crops that you're working on aside from, you mentioned bananas, coffee, and rice. Are there other major crops of value that um, are of interest at this point? Yeah, so, so you, you mentioned a good point that was also one of the reasons why we focused on tropical crops, and namely on, on bananas and coffees, and only lately uh, we expanded into rice. So we chose banana as our initial crop because, as I mentioned, uh, I mentioned the R&D innovation, but you, you, you then mentioned the let's call it the biological innovation. So breeding is essentially impossible in the Cavendish banana because it's an asexual crop. So how can we increase biological innovation, diversity into that clonal crop? And, and here comes uh, the gene editing. So with gene editing, uh, and more specifically non-transgenic gene editing, one can introduce uh, diversity uh, into this asexual crop, and that gives us uh, the opportunity to improve um, the banana. As to the coffee, uh, classic breeding is, is of course, uh, possible. It's, it's uh, a sexual crop. However, it takes between 15, even to 30 years uh, to breed for a new property. And that's a long time. Uh, so you could uh, cross with different uh, varieties and lines of coffee, even with uh, more uh, wild uh, varieties. But then it takes significant time to clean the genome from the undesired DNA in order to, to generate these high-performing lines. And with CRISPR, you could save all this time by editing uh, the high line itself. So you don't need to mix uh, genomes and then clean it up by crossing out. And then if we look at this from a business perspective, you know, you talk about um, we have had guests on talk about the great value of tomatoes or something, you know, which may be in, in the in the U.S., maybe a four hundred million dollar crop or maybe a billion dollars at the, at the biggest. But um, if we talk about coffee and bananas, I mean, these are economically very uh, are massive economically in terms of their value, but also their value to specific portions of the world that um, maybe have had economic challenge. So is that also a, a really good reason to work on these crops? Yes, de definitely. When, when we scored, uh, so when we found a tropic, we, we sat down and said, okay, tropical crops, yes. Uh, I just explained why. Then which crops? And of course, uh, one needs to make a good business case. And as you said, um, bananas are the most consumed fruit globally. It's a highly popular uh, fruit. I don't know, in the UK, for example, when you get into a supermarket, the first uh, fruit that you will see is, is bananas. Uh, and coffee, I think, I don't, I don't need to tell much. It's the most consumed bev uh, beverage after uh, water. So these uh, crops are of um, major importance, and uh, they suffer from uh, several biotic uh, stress, uh, bananas from the black cicatoka disease and the Panama disease to fungal diseases and there are other diseases that um, uh, attack uh, coffee, including viruses and pests. So we thought that that's a, a fantastic opportunity for us to help. And I would say that we are dedicated, uh, we have 
almost 90 professionals dedicating, dedicated to saving uh, the bananas. And can we talk a little bit more about that? So we we know that bananas are under um, fungal attack, Panama disease from Fusarium. Um, Black Sicatoga is a significant disease worldwide. So how bad are those and how much do those threaten the current, what it, what is a current monoculture of Cavendish banana? Yes. So the, the Panama disease is, is a devastating um, disease. It, it is caused by a, a fungus called uh, Fusarium uh, exoporium, uh, TR4, and it attacks uh, through the roots. Uh, the, the, the disease agent, the fungus, can survive in the environment up to the spores up to 30 years. So it's highly infectious, highly stable in the environment, and it has lately spread to the last continent, to, this, uh, to America. And currently there is no place that is free of, of the disease. And um, it is that devastating because infected um, areas are basically quarantined and, and, and burned. So step by step, the disease um, overtake uh, lands that produces bananas. And the industry has already seen uh, such a disaster. So the TR4, Tropical Race 1, another version of a uh, fungus, um, has already in the past uh, eradicated uh, the growth Michel banana. And the Cavendish banana is a banana that could resist the TR1 uh, disease. And now these days we are facing another wave of threat um, triggered by the TR4 fusarium. So it, it is of significant concern, absolutely. Yeah, I, I just want to throw out there for the audience, one of the things that's most intriguing about the uh, fusarium uh, oxysporum that's attacking bananas is that the one that killed Gros Michel uh, was Tropical Race 1. And actually, I have Gros Michel growing at my house here um, in Florida. But Tropical Race 4 that's killing Cavendish, it's all a clone. So you have a clone killing a clone, essentially. It's a really interesting problem. So we have the problem as a, as a fungal disease or a number of fungal diseases, and I guess viral diseases too in banana. But how do you go about solving those? How do you give a banana that has this vulnerability to a specific fungus a um, resistance to it? Yeah, that that's a, a fantastic question that it took us a process to, to be able to start solving. And I would start with saying that initially we did not aim to immediately uh, tackle diseases in banana. And I'll explain why. So we apply, we utilize gene editing in order to increase diversity uh, in bananas. And the first traits that we develop at Tropic Biosciences, we, we call them the low-hanging fruit traits. And what do I mean by that? I mean that the link between the phenotype and the genotype is well established. That means we know which genes to edit, to knock out, in order to develop the traits. And I'll give you uh, examples. One of the traits that we develop uh, is a banana with increased shelf life. 
in order to increase the shelf life of bananas, uh, one needs to uh, delay the ripening process. And you can do that by interfering with the biosynthesis of the ethylene. Ethylene is a hormone that uh, mediates the ripening process. So we knew which genes uh, one need to knock out. But then when we looked into the banana genome, we realized that it's not that simple. We know which gene to target, but the banana has a, it's a triploid. It has three different uh, genomes. And some of the genes, per haploid genome, there are three to five copies. We apply transient CRISPR systems because we do not want to generate transgenic bananas. Therefore, we need to target between 9 to 15 copies of the same gene using transient systems. You have a very narrow window of activity. Therefore, it's a challenge. How can one develop, uh, sorry, how can one target uh, 9 or multiple copies, gene copies? This is the first challenge. The second challenge is, okay, let's say you knock out all the copies. It's, in some cases, it comes with a cost, a plotropic effect. So these genes have evolved to do, uh, to do or to maintain or to facilitate essential processes in the cell. Some of them are known, but some of them are unknown. So complete knockout may uh, lead to deleterious effects. And the last challenge, is that when we started to think of uh, crop protection, how to uh, protect bananas from the Panama disease, for example, uh, we ask ourselves, how can one use non-transgenic CRISPR systems to protect against pathogenic agents? Okay, so CRISPR, you could target the self, you could target banana genes, but how can we directly target pathogens. So these are the three challenges that led us to invent a technology that uh, now is named GIX, uh, which stands for Gene uh, Editing Induced Gene Silencing. And this technology solves all these problems. And I'm happy to tell you more about it. Well, let's go into that in just a second. Let me take a step back to when you say you're doing transient gene editing, how, what exactly do you mean by that? Just to clarify for the audience. Sure. Um, in order to edit genes in banana and to generate a whole edited banana plant, we work with embryogenic cell suspension. Uh, these cells uh, have the capacity to regenerate from a single cell into a whole plant. Now, one needs to deliver into these cells the CRISPR machinery, the gene editing machinery. One way to deliver it is to use methods that incorporate a, a piece of DNA that encodes for this CRISPR machinery that incorporates it into the banana genome. Basically, this is a transgenesis approach. So you make trans a, a transgenic cell that expresses the CRISPR machinery constantly, and then the CRISPR machinery, um, when expressed, edit the desired gene. However, 
Chopic Biosciences develops non-transgenic products. So our novel varieties are not going to be transgenic. In banana, well, not in bananas, let's say in other crops that they are sexually reproduced, one can generate transgenic plant and then using classic breeding can cross out the transgene. However, in banana you cannot do that because banana is asexual. You could not breed out the transgene. So what we had to do is to transiently express the CRISPR system without the event of DNA integration. So we introduced the CRISPR machinery. However, after a while, the CRISPR machinery um, is degraded and we end up with a cell that is gene edited. However, it is non-transgenic. And then this cell is regenerated into a whole edited banana plant. Perfect. So just for the audience so that's clear, you can take single cells from a tissue culture situation or from a suspension culture. You can add the CRISPR uh, enzyme. So think about the molecular scissors and its uh, guide RNA. So the RNA that tells it where to do the deletion. And you can add that uh, to that cell in a variety of different ways. And then it does the work and then basically goes away. So you're able to create the changes, but not introduce the gene. And you can see the utility of that. So we'll continue to talk to the, about this on the other side of a break. We're speaking with Dr. Al Maori. Uh, he's a chief science officer and co-founder of Tropic Biosciences, where they're working on major crops that uh, have significant value in the tropics. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin, and I wanted to share with you a science communication situation and maybe recruit your help. Dr. Sarah Beltran-Ponce went to receive her COVID-19 vaccination. She's a radiation oncology resident, I think in Wisconsin, but she took to Twitter and showed herself getting the vaccination because she's expecting. And she said, for myself, my child, my community, this is why I'm being vaccinated. Her goal was a simple one, to make others, especially expectant mothers, feel more comfortable with receiving the vaccine in this very important public health measure. She's a physician. She knows the risks. She knows the benefits. And she made a decision that was very important for her community. Now, unfortunately, six days later, she miscarried. Of course, unrelated to the vaccine but an anti-vaccine movement was ready to pounce. They brought the flames to her. They criticized her online, tore her apart, castigated her as killing her child. It was the ugliest and coldest thing I've seen in social media in a long time. And believe me, I've seen it. As the scientifically literate community, we have to push back learn this story, share the story, not just of her communicating the science beautifully, but the pushback that she's received from vile people from an objectionable community. It's really important for us to be kind, to share the kindness with her, give her a follow, show her some love, because she's going through rough times, and we want her to be back in social media talking about the beautiful things that science gives us, 
and the wonderful breakthroughs that can contribute to public health. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Eyal Maori. He's the CSO of Tropic Biosciences and co-founder, and they're working on gene editing coupled with RNAi strategies that we'll talk about here in a second uh, to solve problems in important crops in the tropics. And bananas and coffee being two of the world's most consumed crops, yet have received little attention from uh, um, biotechnological improvement, at least that's been released and available. Um, there's been great work in Uganda on Matoke bananas. Um, where there's been great work by Dr. Liana Tripathi in uh, Kenya. Um, a lot of um, great work by others, Judd, um, uh, James Dale. Um, but those have still been shelved without serving the people they need to serve. Uh, the folks who, this is a company that is now using this platform to take on these problems in banana. And because of the fact they're non-transgenic, they may stand a chance of actually doing what they set out to do. So I'll ask you a quick question that came to mind when you were talking about improving the shelf life of a banana by manipulating um, the uh, ethylene mechanism. So either production or sensitivity, well, maybe we could talk about that. But isn't ethylene necessary for ripening to begin? And how do you get around that problem of creating an, an, an ethylene insensitive or non-producing banana how do you get it to ripen? Yeah, that that's that's a very good a very good point. Um, we do not interfere with uh, the ethylene sensing. We interfere with the ethylene biosynthesis. Therefore, the bananas, when produced, they could still sense ethylene, and ethylene is a well established. And ripening using a artificial ethylene is a well established practice in the banana industry, and. Interestingly, such a trait would not just increase the shelf life of banana, but also could increase the yield uh, uh, of a banana because currently the bananas are harvested when they are 80, around 80% of their size just uh, to take them early enough so they are not uh, ripened during the shipment uh, from South America to Europe, for example, or to other places in the world. And when a, 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 the tropic trait will be grown, you could harvest more bananas uh, because these bananas are not going to produce um, or, or they're going to produce a very low amount of ethylene. When they arrive to their destination, these bananas could be uh, ripened uh, as normal using the artificial uh, ethylene procedures established already in the industry. Ah, very good. And, and this is a couple good um, benefits uh, just for the audience. You know, bananas um, I have a supply chain that begins typically in South America, Central America. They come to the U.S. on uh, ref or the U.S. and everywhere else around the world on um, refrigerated boats. And then they place them in these giant rooms and pump in ethylene gas to start that ripening cascade. And so what what's happened here is that. Um, Tropic Biosciences has sought to remove the ethylene that's naturally produced. So the process is 100% controlled by those who want to artificially ripen them. And as a guy who grows bananas, I can tell you, and maybe you guys know this, I'm sure you do, that if you let that banana grow to its full size and completely fill out, it's much sweeter and tastes much better. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So another yes. good benefit. Yes, yes, yes. By the way, um, another trait, another banana trait that we develop at Tropic is uh, non-browning bananas. So um, we target a, a well-known enzyme called PPO, polyphenol oxidase, that is responsible for a browning reaction um, uh, during senescence or, uh, or if it's uh, triggered by uh, physical damage. So you all know these bananas that are brown. So when I was a child, my mom used to, you know, when the bananas got old, she used to look at me and said, yeah, but these are very sweet. These are honey banana. And I have to say, I didn't really like it at all. <laughs> so I'm pleased to say that we also develop bananas that are not going to get brown. Uh, again, using gene editing, uh, non-transgenic, um, and when you think about it, that can also, uh, will also increase their shelf life. Uh, and also it opens a new uh, market uh, avenues. For example, introducing bananas to uh, fruit salads or freshly cut bananas because um, businesses do not do that because the banana gets brown and it's not attractive commercially. Yeah, that's exactly right. Wow, that's something I didn't think of. But the other the other thing about um, about the PPO suppression in bananas is that how do you but how do you know when they get bad? I mean, do they does it just based on the firmness you have to gauge it on, or uh, some other kind of trait that says it's overripe? That that that's a good that's a good point. And when when we develop new products, um, so there is a, the phase of the CRISPR design and uh, application and the generation of plants. And then there is the stage of field trial and the bioassay. So the bioassay's uh, role is, again, to define the performance, to define, assess, and compare the performance of uh, different uh, varieties uh, of the non-browning banana trait, for example. And we are currently working on developing uh, these protocols. Do you think that there'll be acceptance in the EU of a gene-edited banana anytime soon? Uh, I, I have to say that I am not sure. Uh, I hope, but uh, history showed that uh, Europe um, is quite conservative about um, biotechnological innovation, unlike uh, other places. Um, Europe is not our main market, uh, so we aim uh, um, to sell our varieties and products uh, to America, South America, uh, and Asia. Um, however, we, we know that lately uh, we heard about the Brexit of, of the UK, and I can tell you that there are increasing voices uh, towards allowing uh, or relaxing the regulation of gene-edited uh, agricultural products uh, in the UK. So maybe um, maybe the change will start uh, in the UK and later spread in other parts of Europe. <laughs> well, I hope so. Yeah, you talked about the um, the disease resistance traits. And so are those in the same package as the uh, longer shelf life or what genes are you affecting in the disease resistance spectrum to limit the uh, susceptibility to this disease? 
Yeah, that, that that's a good point. So so this is the 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 second um, the second part of our traits. So as I as I mentioned before, our first traits were a more simple traits in which uh, the genes that facilitate the phenotype are known. So we know what to edit, what to knock out in order to develop the traits. However, crop protection, disease resistance, is, is a much more complex uh, trait. And the reason is that traditionally, uh, using genetics, there are two major avenues to develop disease resistance. One is to introduce genes that actively confer resistance, resistance genes, they're called R genes. And the second one is to interfere with activity of genes that facilitate the life cycle of the pathogen or they facilitate the phenotype of the disease, the, the, the pathology itself. These genes are called susceptibility genes, so you need to knock them out or knock them down. Nevertheless, in order to do that, you need to discover these genes, these R genes or S genes. And the gene discovery process is, is, is slow, complex, and expensive. It can take up to 10 years and quite few millions in order to reliably discover a gene. Now, as a young startup, um, we, we couldn't afford that. We couldn't afford the time, neither the resources. So we had to come up with, with a solution. And then we invented uh, the JIGS. JIG uh, stands for Gene Editing Induced Gene Silencing, and it's a technology that allows you to develop um, disease resistance traits without the need to discover genes. And this is why I, I'm really curious about this technique, because just for the audience, you know, the R genes that you speak of, um, the resistance genes, these tend to form in clusters, and they're very similar. They tend to be have similar motifs, maybe little adjustments that make them uh, applicable to specific pathogens or pests or whatever, uh, mostly pathogens. And the, the problem is, is that if you try to figure out where this is in the genome, you find out where one of them is, it's actually in, you can't necessarily find the gene, you find the, maybe the neighborhood or maybe the city that it's in. You, and there's many different candidates in that region. And to go through those candidates one by one would take an entire academic career or an entire company's uh, startup costs. So how does JIGS work to allow you to edit specific genes in, in this scenario? Yes. Um, JIGS essentially is a minimalistic gene editing of non-coding RNA genes that allows to directly attack the disease agent, whether it's a virus, pest, or fungus. And, and I will explain. So in our genome, you have multiple genes in which their role is not to produce proteins. Their role is to regulate and downregulate the activity of other genes. And this is, in essence, uh, the, the, the role of RNA interference. So, to, so these genes encode for RNA that interact with protein complexes to identify in a sequence-specific manner. It's like a seek-and-destroy mechanism. So seeking 
complementary sequence, and when found, uh, targeting it, degrading it, uh, and that's the, this is the mechanism how they downregulate the activity of other genes. So jigs, we identify those what we call smart methyls, these non-coding RNAs. They have the sequence uh, similarity the, the, that allow the seek um, property, and they can engage with an explosive component, which is a protein that can slice other RNAs. That's called an algonaut. And we have developed a technology that can identify all these non-coding RNA genes. And then by very tiny amount of nucleotide change, we can change just their coordinates from one target to any target of choice. And by doing so, we can then redirect their silencing activity towards uh, viruses, uh, nematodes, beetles, pests, um, and, and fungi. Okay, so you're talking about like what might be also interpreted as natural antisense, but then just taking that natural antisense sequence and, um, and giving it a couple adjustments to give it specificity towards your target. Yes, yes, es essentially, yes. So RNAi has evolved, it, it is agreed in the community that RNAi has evolved as an immune mechanism against uh, invasive nucleic acids such as viruses and transposable elements, and later uh, diversified to be an endogenous mechanism to regulate a gene expression and activity. Yes, so in our genome, including our, my and your genome, of course, plants, any eukaryotic organism, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of such regulatory RNAs, what you called antisense RNAs, and we know to map them, and we know to identify those that have some natural similarity. It's not a complete similarity, but it has some similarity, for example, to an essential fungal gene. And by introducing five to 10 nucleotide change, we can then redirect their silencing, targeting activity towards the fungus. And that's how we develop uh, Panama disease resistant bananas. Okay, so this is all coming together for me now. I, I was really a little bit in the dark on what this was from the website. So I, I wanna make sure I'm getting it right. So you're not only, you're creating changes in what are naturally occurring um, non-coding RNAs, but are the, um, uh, ant that are natural antisense or long coding, non-coding RNAs to make them now match fungal genes so that it does what, what is a host-induced gene silencing in the pathogen? Is that right? Exactly. And we do it in a non-transgenic manner. And also we do it by changing only a few nucleotides in the genome. And you... Yeah. And and you direct it against the, the fungus. Indeed, yes. Yeah, so this is really cool. So the so the audience, you know, for you guys who aren't familiar with this technology, if uh, when a fungus invades a plant, uh, many of them use what's called an aprosorium. They use a, a, a like a projection that comes in that actually marries the fungal 
cytoplasm with the plant cells. So now you have this combination of, of like this pipeline that's open between the fungus and the plant cell as part of invasion. And, uh, and if you have RNAs that are floating around the cytosol of the plant, you know, around the cell, that those can migrate into the fungus. And this kind of idea of host-induced gene silencing, meaning the banana produces something that is transferred to the fungus and shuts off fungal genes. And you can do this all day in the banana, but since the fungus isn't there, it has no effect. It doesn't affect banana genes because th they don't have a match for it. But if that fungus comes along, that, uh, as you called it, a uh, uh, special missile or something <laughs> that already exists. So do I have that correct? Yes, yes, yes. In, in recent years, we, we have learned that organisms exchange RNA. So we, we have learned that some invertebrates and, and, and fungi can take up RNA from their host. And scientists have already showed, as, sorry, scientists showed as well a, a, the other way around, that plants can take up RNA from their pathogen, from their, from a, for example, from fungus and, and other pathogens. So this form of RNA communication between organisms um, is, is, is an exciting and emerging field um, in science. And what we know these days, it's, it plays a role in an arms race between the host and the pathogen. So functional RNA transmission has been shown to, for example, to manipulate or to downregulate immunity of plants. So um, fungus deliver manipulative small RNA, let's call it that way, that they silence the immune response in the plant and therefore they can establish their infection. And the other way around was shown uh, as well that plants deliver small RNAs to fungus in order to downregulate uh, their virulence. Jigs relies on, on such naturally occurring phenomenon, which uh, as you correctly said, it's based on host-induced gene silencing. So we rely on the transmission of silencing RNAs from the host to the pathogen in order to target a pathogen. And so can you give me any idea about how durable this is? You know, the big problem is we come up with solutions and then pathogens find a way around them. It, does this kind of silencing seem to be more likely to last longer? It, it, it's a good point. The, the arms race is a never-ending race, right? That drives evolution. Um, the way we develop durable jigs solutions is by choosing conserved pathogen, pathogenic genes and by targeting these conserved genes and then the conserved regions within uh, those genes, um, it increases the durability because any mutation of the pathogen in these areas will come with a cost, with a, with a cost of uh, viability or virulence. Uh, so that's how um, uh, one way to do it. And another way to make sure that there are durable uh, solutions is to apply existing uh, procedures. For example, in a plantation, you 
would keep an island of susceptible plants. So the pressure on the pathogen is not too high. So one needs also to maintain the pressure on the pathogen, not just to have a robust uh, solutions. No, very good. And, and how far along is Tropic Biosciences in this process towards release of a product? So we, we, we are currently in the process of um, assessing which fungal genes are the most susceptible to RNAi-mediated uh, targeting. And in other words, we are now checking um, using multiple different banana plants expressing RNAi molecules, which one of them has the best effect on, on, the, on the fungus. When we know that, we can then uh, direct the JIGS uh, technology to attack this specific gene. Um, and that would be the next stage of the development. So we, we hope that in the next few years, we will be able to generate uh, the Panama disease-resistant bananas and save the bananas from that devastating disease. Well, that's really exciting news about bananas. I, I love bananas and I understand the threat to bananas, but I also have witnessed firsthand the post-harvest waste of bananas. And it really drives me crazy to see that, it, you know, and it seems like you're going to solve all, all of my major banana problems. <laughs> so, um, well, the other, the other big problem, it would be if we lost coffee and, um, and I know that we're probably not going to spend much time on disease resistance on coffee, but I know we, um, I read online somewhere that Tropic Biosciences is actually making a decaffeinated coffee, naturally decaffeinated. And, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, but maybe why do we need a naturally decaffeinated one versus a chemically decaffeinated one? Sure, sure. So we 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 all aware of of the that there are some coffee decaf coffee available in the market, and I believe you would agree with me that the taste is is not. Uh, is not amazing. Let's uh, let's say that. <laughs> and, and and one of the reasons is that that the caffeine is extracted by uh, a process um, in which not just the caffeine is extracted away, but also flavor uh, components uh, using um, water that uh, steaming water to wash away the caffeine and, and other uh, procedures. And, and that's uh, it's a significant problem because some people are susceptible to caffeine or some people really like to drink coffee, but drinking coffee too much or if you're susceptible to caffeine, that may come uh, with uh, some effect. So we, we do recognize that. And when a naturally decaf or natural coffee with a significantly reduced amount of caffeine is going to be available, uh, the coffee is still going to maintain uh, the, the flavor while just removing um, the caffeine or reducing the caffeine level. So that's why we are quite excited um, from this trait and we are making uh, good progress towards the development of this trait. <laughs> that's great. So all the great taste of coffee without the annoying awake feeling, right? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the other the other thing, if I can put in a request, oh, maybe I could come there and do a sabbatical and make the non-browning um, avocado. Ooh, we, we would love to host you. <laughs> sounds, like a, <laughs> sounds like an exciting uh, project. If, if I could somehow make guacamole that did not turn brown, I'd probably get a Nobel Prize, my guess. Um, that, that, that is, uh, <laughs> like the ultimate first world problem, but it's something that I think there is something that would have a lot of excitement. So maybe we can put that in, uh, maybe we can put that on the back burner. I'll think about that. Well, you've talked about this idea of jigs and using this, this gene editing technique to edit, uh, RNAs that have effects in other ways. What other crops could this be applied to, or, or is it being applied to other crops, even like big agronomic crops? Sure. So, so jigs, jigs is, is a universal platform uh, technology. And as long as the edited host is eukaryote, um, so as long as the host encodes the RNAi machinery, uh, jigs is applicable. And I can, um, I'm pleased to share that Tropic Biosciences um, has already started the process of commercializing jigs beyond um, our core crops. So we recognize uh, the benefits of, of the platform and we recognize that um, other crops could, could benefit uh, from crop protection and crop enhancement. And I can tell you that we have a few very good partners. Um, so some of them is published. So BASF, uh, which is, of course, um, agricultural crops, um, and Genos, which is specialized in, in porcine and cattle. Um, so Jigs is definitely uh, applicable. And um, quite a few partners are approaching us to to use the jigs to protect from diverse diseases and i personally hope that one day uh, someone will use this technology to help the bees uh, against the burden of viral infections no very good it's it's uh, it's exciting to think about a, another unique spin on an emerging technology and i tell students all the time you know that this is just getting started so uh, Dr. Al Maori, thank you so much for joining me on the Talking Biotech podcast. Best wishes to you in Tropic Biosciences. And uh, and if, as you go forward, if something comes out that's exciting, please get a hold of me. I'd love to talk to you again. Sure. Thank you very much, Kevin. And thank you. Thank you. Have a nice day. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Continue to write your reviews, but most importantly, share the podcast with others. Uh, these are exciting times and exciting technologies, and especially in a time where a worldwide pandemic has people thinking about DNA, RNA, PCR, all of our biotech techniques. This is a great time to get them familiar with the other beautiful things that are happening. Save the bananas and give you a cup of coffee that doesn't give you the shakes. Doesn't give me the shakes. <laughs> if I don't have it, I shake. Um, thank you very much for listening. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. 
But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.